Welcome back to the Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast, the show that empower you to redefine the life you want and live your best life now. I'm Francine Belay, your host, and I'm super thrilled to bring you stories, inspiration, strategies to get more meaning in your work and in your life, make more money and be part of a movement to change the world. I am on a mission to help entrepreneurs and leaders to become leading voices in their field by leveraging what makes them unique to attract their ideal customers and make a bigger impact in their world. So, I want you to experience success in your business and also live your best life now. Today, I have the great pleasure to welcome Michael Ballard, Michael H. Ballard. He's a president and CEO of Resiliency for Life and keynote speaker. He helps individuals, schools, associations, and communities to learn how to prepare for, deal with, and recover from adversity. Uh, hi, Michael. Welcome to the Hello. Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast. It is great to be here. And I really like the theme of the work because it's important <laughs> we know, discover, reinvent ourselves so that we have that meaningful work. Great. So you also advocate that to build our resilience, to thrive and flourish, we need to understand the process and it is a lifelong journey. So tell us in your own words, what you currently do. Uh, I help, well, I, I develop programs that help individuals, schools, communities, businesses, understand what is resiliency. It's a beliefs and value system. It's a process. It's a skill set, and we have a language that we should be using to be more resilient because we live in a world where, according to one expert, I remember reading that 81 to 83% of what we said is framed in the negative because I wouldn't want to make you feel bad. <laughs> well, it isn't about making you feel bad. I have to state my truth in a way that uplifts, not degrades. So resiliency, for me, is a real game changer. Being of a certain vintage, much older than you, uh, I grew up in the positive mental attitude era in mm -hmm. corporate. And it was well-intentioned, but I got accused of having a bad attitude when I used to say, how? <laughs> and we now, you know, you can't think yourself if you have depression or schizophrenia to a positive mental attitude. And I was very cognizant that I had at least one relative with serious mental health issues. And so, I didn't like the PMA attitude in the big picture where it was sort of jammed down some of our throats. I already had a great attitude, but when you do it like a six inch paintbrush, it's rather insulting to many people. Mm. You're almost whitewashing what it is. And so that got me really thinking. And I was at six, had a concussion. So I was in a room with another young six year old boy who had a concussion. And so I wanted to be real quiet, lights off, and, and my head's this big from this headache that was, and so my roommate though, also with a concussion, and I learned that this is normal, he yelled, screamed, and shouted, where was his grandparents, both pairs, where was his favorite uncle, where was his two aunties, and why couldn't he have more to eat? <laughs> At six, I became a student of human nature. I was astounded, amazed, and I couldn't believe it. I got a head injury that, I didn't know it was a head injury, I just thought it was a headache at the mm -hmm. time. It was, why would you talk? Why would you want the lights on? <laughs> I don't want visitors. And he was at the other end of the spectrum, yelling, screaming, making a fuss. Eventually, after 18 hours of this, I got my own private room where it was really quiet. So that got me really interested. And then the PMA and business got me going, there's a better way. And then I ended up having a cancer journey and that really showed me that the mental health world of the 80s was really well-intentioned but broken because it only looked at what's wrong. And in my family, you got to have balance. What's no wrong? What's not working? Well, you got cancer, Michael. Oh, it's spread. It's in several locations. Oh, statistically, and I was like, whoa. Statistically, in, in five years, I'm a zero or 100%. That's my game plan. I don't want to know my details. Hmm. But what's right? Oh, 
blessed and lucky, fortunate to have two loving parents. You do a gratitude inventory. At the time, I didn't call it a gratitude inventory, but I did an inventory. Mm -hmm. I got a couple of thousand things on my side. Oh, and a doctor that despite just graduating from medical school, went to Europe to study advanced surgical techniques for guys just like me. He's mm -hmm. the only one on the East Coast. Boston only had one. I'm in Halifax. We had one. And Montreal, only had, Montreal, Canada only had one surgeon of this type of technique lessons learned. So it's like, hmm, odds are scary, but psychologically, I'm going to do this. Mm -hmm. So life-affirming, life-changing, it helps with school, helps with grades, graduation rates, it helps with business, helps in community building. It just goes on and on and on. Hmm. Well, that's why I love resiliency. Yeah, we were talking earlier offline about uh, Hoden, Hoden Nalai, who actually yes. uh, interviewed as well a few weeks, a uh, few months ago, and uh, sadly was uh, killed. Uh, and you also mentioned some of the work, uh, youth work that you work, you, you did with her. Yes. Um, yes. and your passion for youth and how she was able to bring together youth and, um, you know, non-youth, <laughs> would I say, together. Um, yeah, can you share a bit about that? Yes, well, she had the ability to bring together people that across the spectrum of age, race, color, creed, even gender preference, which is a real delicate topic in some communities. Mm -hmm. And so... I remember her saying, oh, Michael, many of my culture don't even talk gender, never mind gender identities, and we don't talk the following things. I said, well, we're going to have to start because if we don't, we're going to be more isolated. The more isolated we are, the more we are in danger of not being a community. Mm -hmm. And so when we let race, gender, creed get in the way of being respectful to all, mm. as long as all are being respectful of all, and so she was impressed that I'd been so calm that I had two gentlemen who have, uh, well, one gentleman has transformed and gone through the surgical changes to be a lady. Mm. And one gentleman was born uh, transgendered and he's taken the, the courageous leap of being single gendered. Mm -hmm. So I did an interview with them. So she said, you have your own interesting style people, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> So we had the greatest conversations with no ill ease ever. And it was just fun mm. and interesting. Yeah. And then when she lent me her assistant for three days to practice my resiliency mental health message, she was like, yeah, we're working together. And it was like, great. And it just didn't happen because her schedule was frantic. Mine was busy, but hers was frantic. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. So we worked at a senior's residence where she was teaching seniors how to access social media on a low budget. Her sister was involved as a public health care professional. And I was there teaching these people resiliency skills on coping with the anxiety of slipping slowly into dementia or Alzheimer's mm. and helping the staff gain some skills too, because it's frustrating for everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's really brilliant to you know share a bit of her memory and um, you know what she was able to achieve in Toronto in the, oh. and as you knew her um, yes. a bit. That's well. just Toronto. That yeah, not just London, Toronto, of course. Yes, London and all Somalia, over Somalia, of course, and uh, all over the world. Uh, definitely, the impact she has left, yes. um, you know, will um, so, you know go uh, many, many, many years um, yes. again. Um, so tell me, Michael, um, how I know that, you know, you have been um, surviving, um, you know, many times cancer and everything else. But how did you end up doing the work that you are currently doing? What, 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 what actually happened? Where did you come from? What were you doing? And then to arrive to where you are today, you know, helping people with resiliency. I got the interest in resiliency, as I said, as a six-year-old with a brain injury, a concussion, because somebody else could have the same issue and respond differently. What's with that? So luckily, I was raised to be respectful of all, but it really made me interested in others. I had a chronic health issue diagnosis at 17, and the doctor with good intention said, nothing you can do. So I fell into some low-key despair. I don't know if you'd call it a depression or not, but definitely I had a funk. Hmm. So my family, you're not allowed to live in the land of funk or the land of, oh, oh, nothing I can do. 
You can visit there for a little while, but you have to pick yourself up, dust yourself off and get back going. Hmm. And so I went to the local university and went to the library where I discovered some profound research on what they call mind-body wellness. Mm -hmm. And then I read a book about minding the body, mending the mind, that people with chronic illness practice certain things. You can call them resiliency skills or thriving skills or mind-body skills. Every researcher has to have their own name, you know. Mm -hmm. They have to make their own mark. It's the human <laughs> being ego thing. And it was quite profound that people who practice these skills could have 20% less symptoms, less intensity, 30 plus percent cheaper to take care of. And I went, what's the downside? I'm going to learn some more skills. They appear to be totally congruent with my faith. Oh, a lot of these skills are taught in my Shaolin Kung Fu karate class. I was not very good at that physically, but what it did for my mind and my emotions was profound. It really expanded my social emotional skill set because you and I have to pretend to fight, but, but I was raised that I'm not supposed to hit another person. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Did you just throw a kick that was so accurate that my nose moved, but you didn't hurt me? Oh, did you just throw a punch that touched my ear like you're supposed to, but you didn't hurt me? I guess the game is on. <laughs> so I learned to practice in the dojo with my sensei master and the other students. And that helped me realize that rationally, emotionally, I had programming to work on, if you will. Mm. And here's a university with proof that ancient wisdom was on the money that was right. So that gave me a baseline. So when I had my cancer issues, my doctor, my nursing staff, they all said, Michael, you're not acting normal with a cancer patient. I said, well, with all deep respect and regards to them, who wants to be normal when you're a cancer patient? <laughs> At bedside, the social worker, I'm sorry to be in a hurry, Michael. There's only two of us for 487 beds. Here's my card. If you, have, you feel like you can't stop crying or you feel suicidal, call me. But I got to go. And thanks for the talk. And she was organized. She had a checklist. Keep, keep a job. You have insur house insurance, car insurance. Will this, you know, hardship? How's your wife? Does she work? Uh, contact information for your family. But that was like a three to five minute interview. And it's like, but, but I have cancer and it's spread to three other locations. And it, this is it for a guy that could only live six weeks. I can do better than this. Hmm. Shift in purpose. Up to that time, I was a lean, keen sales machine <laughs> as a, in a consulting firm. Yeah. And then the psychologist came along and just point blank said, I've looked at your chart. You're really sick. You're going to die. You're too happy. You're not paying attention. <laughs> I said, well, you haven't known me but two minutes. And the day of my diagnosis, I went to my lawyer, got a new will made and drawn up because my wife and I are new in, in, the, in this province or state. And so I don't want her to probate a will in another province should I die. So that was the first thing off the checklist. On the way home from the diagnosis after the will was made, I went to my real estate agent we'd bought the house to six, 10 months previous and said, hey, Peter, here's what's going on. Poor guy, blood drained out of his face. You're in charge of selling the house if something happens to me. Here's all the numbers. My wife's work, parents' work, volunteer places. Okay? And here's the name of the moving company, just in case. But I fully expect to be around here and get a promotion and get promoted out of here and back to home base in Toronto in the next few years. Okay, Michael. Then off to go home and phone the moving company. Same deal. Then I phoned 190-odd people being less than shy. Here's what I'm going through. I don't want sympathy. I don't want empathy. I want thoughts and prayers. And if you can, a note in the mail once a month. Tell me something positive in your life. Maybe it's a new do. Maybe it's new glasses. Maybe you just got a Blue Yeti microphone for a higher quality <laughs> sound on your favorite podcast. All sorts of reasons. So... I got 490-odd notes in three weeks. So the nursing staff are, should we know you? Are you a media person from somewhere else and you're hiding out in our town? No, nope, I'm just a guy that's scared out of his wits, but I got a big team. Because I'm, I'm, I'm told I'm respectful, but I also like to, if I can be respectful and make you laugh by being a little foolish, hmm. not at your expense, but at mine, <laughs> I, I think it's a better day. 
Yeah. And so that really got me going because from all that, people started saying, can we do lunch? I got a health issue. You're the only guy I know that's happy when they have a health issue. <laughs> then going for lunch turned into, can you meet my spouse? Can you come to my family barbecue on Saturday because my dad's got cancer? Or I've got this major chronic illness that's going to shorten their life. How did you cope? And so after 30 or 40 of those lunches, coffees and desserts and barbecues, it was like, there's a real need here. So then I launched, I quit my corporate life after 10 years and five, five positions and uh, started doing workshops and workshops mm -hmm. led to keynotes. And then I went through a stage of seven or eight years in the late 80s to mid 90s where I almost worked exclusively with women's groups because mm -hmm. they got it right away. Yeah. So I get a VP of nursing saying, could you speak at my hospital on nursing day? I know you know that 3% of the nursing staff are men, and I've heard you say that you wished it was closer to 25% because every time we have a blended gender group, care goes up. Yeah. That's not a derogatory comment mm -hmm. to women. That's mm -hmm. just on my surgical team. When I had a woman on the surgical team of five, it was better. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to come and talk on nursing day and tell them to take care of themselves. He said, Michael. The pain is profound. I said, well, yeah, they deal with people like me sick all the time. Mm. She said, nah, I don't think people like you taking care of you would be that much work. It'd be work, but I'm told that you were fun. I have my own sources, Michael. And I went, oh my gosh, as my father would say, it's a good thing I was well behaved. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my launch. And yeah. so along the way, we've done a video for a corporation for 10,000 staff on how to be a resilient worker but we planted a little message at the end of all the different sections that were, you know, three minutes, seven sections, 20 minutes long. Talk to your spouse, talk to your life partner, talk to your adult and teenage kids about this work you do. So then they released it to their the spouses as well, which I was really flattered and honored. Yeah. We need to know this. We need to practice it. It's not about perfection. It's mm -hmm. just about, we work in the same office. We could really get along 20, 20 days of every month, but one month we could have 20 days where it's like, ah, what am I doing with working with this person? They're driving me crazy. We need to talk and share and have the skills to, to get it right. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Tell me actually when you were a kid, um, you know, before you were six, I think that since, uh, you know, after you were six, you started to think of this resiliency. What well, is it a job that you wanted to do? Like when you were very kid, uh, were you dreaming uh, of becoming something or didn't have a clue what I wanted to be? except I like to entertain and make people happy. Ah, so you so, did already at the time like so to I, make I, people I, happy I, and entertain people. I was blessed that two loving parents and four great grandparents, four awesome grandparents, but I also had an uncle who took an added respectful interest in me. So before I even had words, he'd come and visit, but before he left, off would come the shoes, down on his hands and knees, and we would spend time and he would talk to me like I understood him. <laughs> and I remember as I, my, what, some of my earliest thoughts were, I wanted to be like him when I grew up because I was acknowledged, I was seen, I was heard. And at 13, when my brother who had the same birthday as my grandfather, everybody was celebrating that. And that was nice to do. But uh, I felt a little left out because my birthday was only two weeks. They could have at least acknowledged mine was soon. I was 13. <laughs> He's like, you, me. Out comes grandpa. We get in my uncle's car. Sit in the front seat. Grandpa's going to sit behind you for a change instead of the other way around. Because in our family, the elderly seniors sit in the front and the young ones sit in the back. Mm -hmm. So, okay. He takes me to the highway. He puts the top down. Now, it's March. It's only 40 degrees out or <laughs> three Celsius. Yes. We start going down the highway with the top down. He said, to, he looks over his shoulder to his father, my grandfather. Pops, are you ready? Yep. He reaches around and it turns out my uncle had emergency underwear in the, under the <laughs> front seat in a bag. Takes it out. He says, hold on tight. Put them above your head. Boom. Instant windsock. Well, <laughs> we all, it was so much fun. <laughs> How are you again? About 13. 13, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> he he didn't mean to upstage the whole event, but for me, he upstaged the whole event. We went down to the next turnpike, turned around one more time, and then home. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> so my uncle, in the polite words of the day, was a character. Nothing illegal, nothing mm. immoral. Mm. But he, like me, school was tough. Mm. In the 60s and 70s, you didn't spell, you didn't pass. So mm. it took me five years to get through four years of high school. Mm -hmm. the, the joke in the family is if Michael had a tombstone and at the end of his life, it would be endoplasmic reticulum was his nemesis. You could offer me $10 million and I'm not sure I could spell it unless I had a year of lessons. <laughs> so he empathized and he also had the courage to take me for a walk and a talk when I failed grade nine. So for an uncle to show up after the report card day, he took a day off work without pay. Take me for a walk and a talk and say, don't make the same mistake I did. For a 30 odd year old male to admit his error, a big error, a big life error and lesson, talk about a blessing. I went back to school with renewed vigor. I was gonna pass my uncle, never mind my parents and grandparents, my uncle told me, because we were, we were bonded. He was sort of like honorary, big brother as well as uncle mm. and he was a charmer in all the best categories i mean he could make my his mother my grandmother laugh so hard she lost all dignity <laughs> knee slapping snorting <laughs> <laughs> again he was never malicious yeah but i remember him one day his mother said to him his name was jim his father's name was Jim, so he was Jimmy when she was around. Jimmy, you'll make a fool of the boy. And he said, it's two ladies related to you and me. <laughs> <laughs> Who talks to their mother like that? He yeah. did. She yeah. laughed so hard because it was true. Mm -hmm. uh, so that gave me this foundation mm. of security, emotional, intellectual, physical security, that, and then with faith that I'm not invincible, but we can do this. Mm. I might die. You know, the psychologist had the feeling that I had the cancer and the cancer had me. Mm -hmm. And I was raised that, no, give it a shake. You can visit that, but don't live there. I, Michael, yes. part of my life, I have cancer, but I still play the piano. I still mm -hmm. have a career. I got a loving wife. I have my faith. Mm -hmm. I got a long list. Nowadays, we'd call it a gratitude list. But in the yeah. 70s, 80s, it was just, I did an inventory. Mm -hmm. And it was like, okay, cancer, I got my elbows up. And this is going to hurt you. Not me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got all these invitations. So there we launched. Yeah, you know, that's so. that. That's really brilliant, actually. Uh, in, uh, you know, um, understanding to uh, have actually this uncle actually actually was, uh, you know, uh, a booster in your life and uh, really, um, yeah, yeah. Oh wow. So um, so when when you think about um, you know, your life, um, yes. do you think that you have already realized who you are and what you are meant to do in life? I believe I'm close, <laughs> but I have more to do. So there's, mm. there's, there's four or five books that have to come out. Mm. So I want to equip parents and kids of the world and school teachers, because those are our the youth too. But if we all start with three to seven-year-olds, youth will have the information. So to speak in grandiose, big, big picture terms, if every child and every parent and every school teacher had the tools, it could change things. Because in working with traumatized kids, I've taught them situational mental health skills for what experts would call their inner locus of control, mm -hmm. but their inner world. When their eyes are closed and they're, and they're quiet, what's going on in here? How do they feel? So my course is called Imagine Yourself. We've got some good programming up in English, but there's more to do. I would like it in at least the top 20 languages of the world, because when you can take a child that's been traumatized and seen vicious things, whether it's war or, or, or family issues or crime, and you help them be calm, they can study. They can get a good night's sleep most nights of the week. They're easier to parent. And then when they're the appropriate age, we can help them work it through with the right professionals. But one world expert told me, well, you can't help traumatize three-year-olds. They're too young. And I went, yeah, you can. I have gamified mental health because I went through stuff. My daughter at seven had a brain tumor, a world-class hospital for surgery, and they had nothing to offer till after surgery. And, and she fell asleep being medically tested, blew their minds. But it's loud, it's scary, it's 
only because you don't give her any skills to cope. Mm. So then they said, what have you done to her like that? And it's only because I'm civilized, I didn't grab it and break it. <laughs> we didn't do anything to her. We did things with her. We helped her understand that when you go through life's big stuff, and I use the words big stuff deliberately because it's not related to any particular issue. I don't want to traumatize anybody and trigger. Then there's a process. There's language. There's skills. And you can alter the quality of the experience and not always, but often change the quality of the outcome. So... I might have died of cancer many years ago after six weeks, but I'd have died being in more control, having a sense of purpose that, hey, now that I'm here, the psych ward calls up every couple of days. How's Michael? We're having a bad day. Does he want to come up and play the piano? We're, we're missing him. We have requests. <laughs> so I was fighting for my life, but I found out that some people thought I played the piano well enough. They were asking for me to come play the piano. So yeah. that gave me a sense of purpose. So I, I don't believe I was in denial about being really ill. I just had an agenda and it was like live or die in six weeks, six months, 66 years, I'm coming through and cancer. I'm going 15 rounds and I'm not a heavyweight like Mohammed, but uh, I'm no lightweight either. Hmm. And I'm going to give it to you. Yeah. And I didn't have... Yeah, you know, what would you say was the key factor that, you know, you, you survive when other people didn't make it or can't, don't, don't make it? What, what would you say are the really key, key points? A combination of factors, I believe. Mm. My family doctor was off on sick leave. I got a medical student, newly graduated. So she was a full-fledged doctor. And as she put it, Michael, I'm here for, for, for six months, max. She was already four months pregnant. Mm -hmm. very pregnant. It was like four months, you know, between my spouse and I at the time, I said, it looks like she's trying to smuggle beach balls. <laughs> she wasn't a little bit pregnant at four months. She was really pregnant. It was like, wow, that's four months. Did Nine she have triplets? She's going to have to have a slow moving sign on her bottom because the poor lady was long and long. She wasn't wide, but she was long. She said, if we keep you on this side of the bridge where we have one hospital and it's a regional hospital, you'll get excellent care, but I have done my research and you'll get 1950 surgery techniques. That'll keep you safe. Long-term implications. If we go across the bridge though, we have three teaching hospitals. Several professors are also working as medical professionals, doctors, because they got professorships and they're back and forth. So they do, three-quarters doctor load, three-quarters professor load, and are extremely busy, but leading edge. We also have nursing teachers, or nursing professionals over there who are also professors. So it's a little more invasive. Nothing like having eight people at the bedside in the morning when it's grand rounds, but as I tease them, I'm not Scottish, but I feel like I'm getting my money's worth. <laughs> All these extra opinions. Of course, the medical students later would say, you realize you're talking to the doctor like that? I said, yes, you should hear him. He's a comedian in his spare time because I'm so, so scared. He asked me, do you mind comedy? I said, are you kidding? It's the only way I can cope. Hmm. I have faith, but that I need extra help. So mm -hmm. Hmm. my family doctor was, or my surgical doctor was amazing. So my family doctor helped me get a great surgeon hmm. with the courage to go to school for nine, six more months, despite having seven to nine years of, school already mm -hmm. then i was raised with faith the grandparents the parents the support the uncle who would say that's a great response your mother gave you to help you deal with that issue and your father too what's your response and i remember at nine years old what's he talking about my parents gave me answers i got it no i want you to blend them and come up with your own mm -hmm. okay one more totally different give me another one he made me think about my words in ways different than my parents. So my parents weren't strict, strict, but they were, you know, be respectful. My uncle Jim was like, first one's gotta be respectful. The second one just has to come out. Naughty, nice, don't care. I just want you to have another way. Then tone it down, make it different than the first response. Anyway, so that helped me navigate all the professionals mm -hmm. in a way that I remember one of the nurses saying, you know, you're the only patient in the cancer where we've ever had that is fun. All, all the time. 
-hmm. said, well, I'm scared. So right place, right time, right team, prayers. My dad offered me something after we talked because he was in his 50s. He was pretty grumpy. He said, you know, my belief systems are sons bury fathers. Fathers don't bury sons, and I feel totally helpless. So out of my area of expertise, I said, no, it's totally in your wheelhouse, Dad. You've raised me really well with Mom. It's a little emotional, can you tell? <laughs> it's like I'm still there. Mom and you were a great team and role model on how to be a couple. You gave me the best food. This is not bad diet. Doctors told me this is genetic. A couple years later, I found out it was in the same location as my grandfather on my mother's side who died. So I can't prove it's genetic, but if you both have a tumor in the identical spot, the paddock flexure beside the liver, mm. hmm, I'd say yes. My, mm -hmm. my thing is I got it uh, 35 years earlier than grandfather. So those learning issues in high school and the stress of trying to graduate, unacknowledged stress in the beginning and now with a little therapy, oh, I want to catch up to my peers in their career. They got a two-year head start. Hmm. Mm -hmm. I did. But at mm. what price? Anyways, so a lot of factors. And then my dad's help, he had access to the intranet before there was an inter intranet. So giant corporation, they rented satellite time. He could get on his computer. And he talked to all the ladies and gentlemen he worked with. He was a technical expert around the world for a major Fortune 50 company. So what do you want? I said, you tell them all. Michael wants them to go to their house of worship and be prayed for. Mm. He wants healing and the wisdom to cope. Forgot to ask for pain management. <laughs> <laughs> Honest to gosh, within three days, I felt lifted up. I, mm -hmm. I knew I was physically walking on the ground, on mm -hmm. the floor. Mm -hmm. I feel normal anymore after that. Mm -hmm. And I cut my pain meds in half. And the doctor's like, are you sure? I'm not getting any muscle spasms. And the lower my pain meds, the clearer this is, the clearer this is, the better I can do this, mm -hmm. the better I can concentrate on this. I used to go to the the men's shower and I wasn't allowed to have a shower after the 16 inch incision because you don't want infection. And I said, I'm just going to lock myself in for 20 minutes and have a good cry. Mm. Well, I went in at five o'clock in the morning, locked the door, had a good cry, came out, went back to the nurse's desk, said, Michael reporting back for healing. <laughs> <laughs> a miracle <laughs> happened. <laughs> and, and, and things progressed yeah. really well. I mean, it came back and visited me again four or five years later. Mm -hmm. But that was also very proactive. Mm -hmm. That was in the cancer spread. And it was in more than 12 spots, but it was, I was very fortunate. I had the dumb, slow moving cancer. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me That's actually. Beautiful. Yeah. So uh, what did you struggle with the most in life? Calmness. Uh, uh, for your, for your listeners or viewers, there's uh, new research to prove it's true that it's called intergenerational stress. My grandmother at six, her father, her brother was murdered in the workplace. Her father died three days later looking into who did it, who done it. So the gift and the challenge I got from that side of the family was this high level energy and intensity. Mm. Great when you can focus it and use it. I love nothing better to be able to do in four hours when I was in sales from calling and interacting, what some people couldn't do in a week. Doesn't make me better than, just different than. But also the downside is sleep. That one night a week, one night a year, that one night a month that not only can you not sleep, you wake up so tired, it's like you haven't slept for a month because this is not shutting off. Mm. So to have to over time learn the skills and get the gift of calmness, some of the time, never all of the time, <laughs> it's been big, but that's a, that was a struggle. That's probably why I failed grade nine, that and the learning issues, it made it really tough. And my how uncle, did you manage that? How did you manage to get to the space actually when you can, you know, find some calmness? That's the, one of the things to teach situational mental health to kids because I learned it the hard way. And so I needed them to, I wanted to share it. So teaching the young man with Tourette's, I dealt with a 15 year old who'd been treated terribly by a relative sexually and uh, intensely. And after five years of therapy, the mother said, she still doesn't sleep most nights. I'm like, well, what skills have they taught her? Oh, they just want medication. Helping her understand that she has four types of energy, loud, fast, quiet, and slow. And each one offers gifts. And each one's deployed at the wrong time, get in the way of our engagement and happiness with self and others. Hmm. So, so quiet 
and slow can be calmness and restful reflection time or sleep. Or it can be withdrawn from the world because we're in overwhelm. Both are quite acceptable, but if you're withdrawing and overwhelmed all the time, it's hard to get on with your life. People fail school, people fail relationships, life, they're failing life in a, to be happy. And loud and fast, vital information. I did very well in the playground as a kid because I was that kid that we were playing, competing against, and I loved softball. I wasn't very good at softball, but in the 60s, it was okay to have chatter. Hey, batter, 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 those are cute socks. Are those your grandma's? I wasn't nasty, but I was on a winning team six out of seven years. I was very good at getting you to flub that strike, that, that bat, because I could chatter. <laughs> Around 13, my father said I had to stop it entirely because it was inappropriate. Brats, it was my winning technique. <laughs> a lot of different ways. Yeah, yeah. So, but skills mm -hmm. make a difference. And awareness of what you're going through makes a mm -hmm. difference. Yeah, yeah. So people need to, you know, whatever you have, you have to be aware of that, obviously. Yes, That's right. the first exactly. first step to finding the solution is the awareness. And I totally agree. Yes. Um, what would you say is one of the toughest moments you've encountered in life and some of the learnings that you got from it? Ah, she's quite healthy now. But when my youngest was seven, we got, she got diagnosed with a brain tumor. Mm -hmm. So devastating, overwhelming. Was it genetic or is it uh, genetic or? No, they, they said that they started appearing in young ladies at about 12 years of age, starting in the 1920s and 30s. No known cause. And 89% of all these tumors were in young ladies. The only correlation after extensive, expensive research was that it coincided with the shipment of, of certain chemicals starting in the mid-1920s. And for every metric ton of chemicals that got shipped, brain tumors of these young ladies went up. And they said, it, by country, by continent, it's very consistent. We can't prove it, but it's the only causation we can see. Hmm. So is it causation or is it just similar? I forget the proper research terms, but you get the drift. Mm -hmm. So they said there's none of these chemicals in these children's bodies because we've done the blood work and the tissue samples, but it's really not a good thing. So it was frightening that our daughter could die, come back at 20% of capabilities. So, you know, forever two years old or more. Well, we were blessed that for the first two years, she was in the top 2%. And then over 10 years, she was in the top 20% of recovery. And now she's graduated university. She's graduated uh, a special college course. She's got a certificate as well. And she's a music therapist. Wow. That's yes. amazing. So I, my proudest moment is several months after surgery, I came home from being away from work for two days. And I got greeted at the door with this big smile. Face. Daddy, daddy, I've read 77 books since the hospital. And some of them are even chapter books. <laughs> so, wow. I remember like yesterday, even though it was 25 years ago, because... Most of that effort was her mother's and hers. I got to help a little, but daddy was out making money to keep the home fires burning. But mm. wow, to see that little brain light up. Mm. And uh, it was tough. But again, from what I'd learned mm. previous, we did things for her. We gave her calming skills. So we taught her about belly breathing or diaphragmatic breathing, some yeah. would call it, but I like mm -hmm. to give these common terms to make them easier to access. Yes, yeah. Mm -hmm. We taught her meditative walking, only we call it slow racing. We've got several. I have leaves, breeze, and trees where you practice all four energies mm. just to get you to what state am I in. If, mm -hmm. I'm, calm, if I'm quiet and slow, this mm -hmm. one gets me to acknowledge quiet and slow, but oh yeah, I have to do some fast and loud. Mm -hmm. If I'm fast and loud, the reverse. Mm -hmm. So, that's why she fell asleep in the MRI scanner because she said to the technician, can I sleep? And they went, yeah, sure. Good luck with that. Well, they, said, <laughs> they didn't know that she practiced the techniques so well. <laughs> we practiced having her in an MRI scanner because I used to make bread for the family every week. So I had some giant bread bowls. So I put one on my arm and we pulled her in. I said, just imagine in your imagination, mommy dancing. You know that daddy thinks when mommy dances, she's the most beautiful woman in the world and quite a dancer. Daddy can barely think straight when mommy dances. <laughs> Pull her out. What's that like? Okay. Back in. Okay. Now 
imagine daddy dancing and don't giggle because you know when daddy dances everybody's <laughs> got to get back three feet because things just fly out all over the place and that's how you get a hurt nose if you're too close to daddy unless you're doing your head on my shoulder slow dance mm. so i got a giggle out of her and she practiced seeing that and we mm. brought her in and out we practiced going on a bike ride in her imagination while she was in there it oh, works that's amazing so that's why i call it situational mental health because yeah if we have the awareness of process, if we have the awareness of skills and mm. practice them, and then the language, the research of resiliency is I am. That's a big deal on, on social media these days. But that's the, that's the beginning piece. I am, I have, I can, and I do. Mm. That's and those four, beautiful. If you, if you get the confidence and the background and the skills, it makes you rather tough to deal with if somebody's trying to control you and manipulate you, but it makes life a, a little more progressive and higher quality experiences and often outcomes. Yeah, that's a beautiful skills. I say it again. I have, I am, I, I am, yeah, I, I have, am, I have, I can, I can and I, I do. do. Yeah, that's lovely. Yes. So <laughs> the original research focused on the first three, and that's what they noticed around resilient kids. So that's great to have those three traits. But for the kids that are on a tipping point, I added the, I do. That's mm -hmm. the permission. Yeah. I do. Mm -hmm. So the little boy that was going to be expelled from school because he was acting out after some witnessing some terrible violence in his life, we helped him with the, I, I, I am mm -hmm. smart. Mm -hmm. I, I have loving people in my life. I can be calm often. Mm -hmm. Not always. Nobody's perfect. Mm-hmm. So I had him giggling because I said, imagine a firefighter that didn't have the gift of loud and fast. Mm -hmm. They'd be knocking on your door. We see fire. Do you want to be rescued? So he thought that was funny. I said, imagine your mom taking a car to work and the disc jockey in the morning. They hired disc jockeys in the morning to get people all livened up and excited about the day. Good morning. Today the traffic is. You've heard them. I said, because your mom drives you to school sometimes. Mm -hmm. Imagine if the disc jockey was quiet and slow. Good <laughs> So I put it in terms that kids and seniors cannot, can understand. I got the gift of working with Auschwitz survivors twice mm. at a nursing home at the time that was just a few blocks away from me here. Everybody in the room was a senior, senior, 88 to 103. Wow. It was the most amazing time. And the, the director of education and the VP of nursing both said, Michael, you're here because you've got nurses to laugh about aging. <laughs> the nurses in that group were all management nurses. We're all over 50. You said at 27, you had an advanced look at being older. Things dripped after surgery. And after the second surgery, things dripped and leaked. <laughs> mm. So she said, as these people age, they've been through horrific times and they're confusing their body aging with weakness. Mm -hmm. So if you can get them to get past the fact that it's not weakness, it's just life. Mm. Because they still have the courage of faith, the courage and the love of family, intellect, and all sorts of life accomplishments. So I got to work with them twice, totally humbling. The first time I was in their house of worship, you want me to talk about resiliency in a house of worship? Well, I'm not aware I do anything naughty or wrong and my language is disciplined, but it still felt really humbling to be invited to a house of worship to talk and present. Mm. And my claim to fame is the letter I got back said, first time ever that only one person fell asleep during a presentation. <laughs> <laughs> because normally they will all fell asleep. Because <laughs> well, you're all, all 88 and older. Even those of us after 40 like an afternoon nap sometimes. <laughs> and medication time, right? So it was pretty amazing and humbling to get the time. And a couple of the, uh, couple of the grandmas came up for hugs. And one of the babas wanted me to meet her daughter or granddaughter. And I said, I'd love to accept. I'm older than you think I am. And my wife and I don't meet young, I, I don't meet young ladies without my wife present. <laughs> oh, and the poor grandmother was embarrassed. I said, that's the biggest flattery you could ever give me, especially if she's got to be just as cute as you. <laughs> so it's nothing like having a 92 year old want to introduce you to her 30 year old granddaughter. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, yeah. that's so funny. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a real honor to share the message. It's not my message. I just got to learn it. Yeah. I've been directed towards some books along the way. So Victor Frankl. Oh, yes. The Man's Search for Meaning. In yes. The, in the That's, 1940s, yeah, Man's yeah, Search for Meaning. Yeah. yeah. People's mm -hmm. Search for Meaning. Yeah. I got to meet 
one of his relatives for a few years. Really? And they had lots of great conversations. She, she even interviewed me, which was really humbling and an honor. So it is doable. Mm, yeah. It is doable. Yeah, yeah. So tell me, Michael, let's talk about money now. Okay. Uh, the reason I asked this question is about if we are passionate, let's say that we are passionate about what we are doing, but actually the money that we get paid is not meeting, you know, we are not, you know, doesn't, is not enough to do what we have to do. And then on the other hand, other people might be so lucky that they get paid quite a lot, but do not have much money in their life. So my question is, how can we do both what we love and get paid well for it? Do you have any perspective on that? Some of us, my dad had a great example of this. He oh. worked for a Fortune 50 company. And he said to me one day when I was in my 30s and I got my third, I'd been promoted to my third level in the company. He said, got a role, got, I, got, I met an interesting role model on how to live life. He said, one of the security guards I always say hi to, he's always got a great attitude. He works midnights and yet he's got enough seniority that he could have been a supervisor by now. So he said, I was working on a weekend and he was pulling an extra shift. So there's nobody around but him and me. I mean, doing paperwork, catching up. So why this role? Everybody tells me that you're really smart. You got an honors degree in university. He said, ah, I've dedicated myself to a certain charity. I'm the president of North America. That briefcase I bring has paperwork. We raise millions of dollars for the world and we have a health cause. And right now we're working on eradicating an illness in this country where it's the worst in the world. And if we can eradicate it there, we're gonna change the health of the world because from there it spreads, airlines, ships. And he said, because from there, we're gonna go to the neighboring countries. And he said, we're proving things. My dad was like, whoa, when did you make this choice? In university, I didn't need to chase money. I got a safe, secure job. I'm really good at what I do here but I don't need to, I don't get exhausted mentally. It's physically tiring. I walk miles and miles as a security guard, but he said on my break, I open up the briefcase. This was the eighties. He had a mobile phone. Mm -hmm. A lot of people didn't even know what that was then. Yeah. But he said, I'm changing lives in a, in a manner of a magnitude of thousands or millions that I couldn't do in my regular life if I was me working in corporate doesn't make it wrong for others. It's just not me. So that was, I was like, wow, he's pulling, he's working two jobs, mm -hmm. one for fee, pay the mm -hmm. bills to eat and one that's changing the world. So that was one way. Another way was I met, I worked on a United Way board and one of the board members worked 40 hours a week, like a lot of us, some weeks, a lot more, but he tried to have Wednesdays off every week four 10 hour days or five or instead of five days a week and Wednesdays was his volunteering and he said work takes every ounce of fortitude I've got he's a high performance six-figure guy but he said Wednesdays is my being human to the best of my ability <laughs> soup kitchens Salvation Army work mm. you name it it's some would say entry-level volunteering no it's how I save myself because mm. I have nothing illegal or moral in my corporate work, but it's exhausting. And I don't really like some of the people I have to work with to earn a living, but I earn a good living. I can donate generously to charity and Wednesdays is mine. I went, Oh, so that was another way. And so for me, I jumped into the deep end of the pool and just quit. But by then I'd done 40 or 50 of these. <laughs> I used to tease munch and learns with one-on-one -on -one or coffee and desserts. I love my coffee and desserts. Mm -hmm. As a diabetic, I have to manage the size and the portion, but I don't stop. Mm. So that's, and then find a mentor or two or three. Yeah, I think that is beautiful, actually. Those two uh, examples uh, and the lessons to get from there, I think is really uh, insightful, actually. Thank you uh, for sharing that. Now let's talk about building a movement. So which movement are you leading or would like to lead or be part of? I would, I, I, I have just, in the last three years, met two people who I believe will help me start a movement to make situational mental health a bridge so we can all talk about mental health. 
Who doesn't want to talk about getting through a car accident better? Who doesn't want to go in for intermediate, minor, or major surgery and come out mentally more sound? Who doesn't want to pass more exams and fail less or not at all because they don't have anxiety writing tests? The three-year, five-year-old that I coached as they went to leave town, his mother and him had me over for tea and pizza. Mom likes tea, you like pizza, we're having lunch. So I met them on a Saturday and the mother said, I've got a note to come see the teacher at the end of the year because they know we're moving. And he said, I wanted to tell you that your son is the calmest child I've ever had for testing. And at the beginning of the year, when I said we're having a pop test next week, it won't count for your marks. It's the practice having a test. Your son put up his hand and he said, I want to teach the class what my friend Michael taught me. So he said that my friend Michael said, if you practice your belly breathing, it helps your brains come out on the test. <laughs> the teacher said, normally when you give grade three kids tests, there's always those three little kids, I have to use the bathroom, I have to use the bathroom, four yeah. times in a 20 minute test. Not good or bad, it's just anxiety and life is. He said, I haven't had that once all year. This is the calmest class I've ever had. Who's this Michael guy? And your young man is an ambassador for calmness. Because I taught him belly breathing, diaphragmatic breathing. I taught him meditative walking, slow racing, uh, leaves, breeze, and trees, all sorts of different things. And it was quite remarkable. So the goal is schools are going to get it licensed for schools, develop it into for North America, English, French, and Spanish. Mm -hmm. But also in Ontario, we have 99 languages in Toronto mm -hmm. where there's thousands of people lots of them have english as a second third or fourth or fifth language but not a lot of them when they first get here have english as a as as a first high usable so if you go to the hospital it'd be really nice to have at least some programming in a language that helped you understand what your anxiety is and how to cope so that's yeah one of the things so we're having a book come out in the first 90 days of next year on stories of people who have gone through life's big stuff and at the end of the chapter, we're going to recap what that was and what do they do to get out to break free and move forward. Oh, that's brilliant. Let us know uh, when the book come out and uh, okay. I'll, 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 um, I'll put that in the show notes as well. So uh, tell me, Michael, in, um, you know, how do you see, you know, let's imagine yourself at 99 year old or more, perhaps like you're 103 years old, what are you the most proud of? Attempting to live life respectfully and impacting others. That's beautiful. So tell me now, uh, what do you think that you've learned from all your experience that you most want to transmit to others? We have to make a big choice. Nobody's perfect, so we can't do it in every situation. But there's a society currently in North America, if not around the world, where people react all the time as opposed to reflect and respond. Mm -hmm. And if we can learn to reflect and respond, I believe it keeps us safer, keeps us happier, keeps us more engaged with society. And if those around us keep you know, reacting, 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 then we have to make choices of who do we wish to let in our life here and here and in our personal space. And in the last two years, for the first time ever, I've started to gently fade away from some. And in the case of a couple of people, I just blocked them. I don't want to deal with them anymore. You're going to be nasty and vulgar all the time. God bless you. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, tell me. So if your life was a book or a film, which title would that be? Ouch. Ouch. Ooh, and then a tagline. Learning how to bounce back multiple times. <laughs> <laughs> I love the title and I love even more the, the subtitle. That's brilliant. So finally, tell me, what is your definition of meaningful work and meaningful life? Uh, meaningful life, uh, getting psychological paychecks that, that make you realize that what you're doing is helping and uplifting. I could have stayed as a sales guy and I'm told I was very good at it. And it was great to be a retail expert because if you owned a store and I could help you increase your income by 40000 a year, some of them, that meant they paid off their bills. Some of them gave their staff a raise and paid off their bills. I loved it. But that was a slow one. My, my, this thing says, go hire, help hundreds of thousands. Mm -hmm. It was great lessons. I got to work with one of North America's leading private retailers. He had three locations. And wow. 
world-class in all categories to the point where people didn't believe he could sell as much as he did through the spaces of the stores he had. And so getting this installed would be just monumental for me for healthcare and education. It's a big quest. Even if I only get a few school boards on board and a few hospitals on board, it still means that hundreds of thousands will be impacted in any one year. So that's the quest. Situational mental health to be something we all talk about. Because talking about anxiety has got a negative. Talking about, oh, I had a lot of loud and fast energy today. Could be excitement, could be anxiety, could be both mixed together. So helping lose judgment on situational mental health so that we actually use it. Yeah. That would so, be that would be my life affirming life claim to fame. Because I would like to work till I'm 90 and then have 13 or 14 years of lollygagging around at the beach and doing a couple of days a month. <laughs> and somebody I never met was an educational worker who worked all over the world until he was 91. And he put in a 60-hour work week because he was, his, as his staff said, because I, I got invited to go meet him, but his schedule never meshed with mine. You know, I'd only be out of town two days a month, and that would be when he was in town. It was like, ah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So tell me, um, what actually um, do you um, have as a last piece of guidance to our listeners to do more meaningful work and live a meaningful life? What do you read? How does that impact you? How does that expand your mind, deepen your thoughts, deepen your purpose, deepen your reserves? So, for example, I read Tuesdays with Maury with, by Mitch Albom. I'm not going to say what it's about, but it's life-affirming. It's really important to have those life-affirming messages in your life. As a 20-something-year-old, I discovered... An author, Og, OG, it was a nickname, Mandino. Og has since died, but I read everything he wrote. And it was not only life-affirming, but it was life-motivating. I read Full Catastrophe Living, How to Deal with Overwhelming Events. Life-affirming, life-motivating. Gave me a process, gave me skills, different than some, but very powerful. I read Mastery by George Leonard in the 1980s. And that was like, boom, oh my gosh. To get good at something, there's a process. You got to learn the language. You got to learn the skills. You got, Whoa, why is he only telling me this? I'm 20 odd years old. Why didn't I learn this in sports? Why didn't I learn this in school? Why didn't I learn this in corporate training? And he says it all in a tiny little book. And then he talks, he has a chapter about, so what gets in the way? Oh, somebody talking about why our learning doesn't stick, why we don't use it. So those are just some examples, but I used to have a library of 900 books and after several moves, I have 50 or 60. <laughs> and the rest on your around. Kindle. <laughs> I suppose the rest on your Kindle, yes. Yeah. So that's, those are some of the things. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. So how can people reach you if they want to know more about you and your work? Okay, they can find me on Twitter at Resilient Michael Noel. So Twitter, LinkedIn, MH Ballard, or Facebook, Michael H. Ballard. And drop me a note because I love to speak to organizations, schools. I work with boards of ed. I work with Fortune 500s. In Canada, we call it the Canadian Business 1000. <laughs> Have message will travel. You know, I've been to Bermuda, been to Singapore, been all over the States been way all over Canada yeah. and everything from women's shelters and youth groups and church groups to boardrooms and or sales teams people need to be resilient and it does nobody any favors if we burn each other out there's no win there I thank you so much Michael for all your wisdom you. and your you know all your anecdotes and your stories and everything else that you share on this podcast today it was a great pleasure to have you it was great to be here and thank you what are you committed to do today to do more meaningful work and live a meaningful life the show notes of this episode of meaningful work meaningful life are available on my webpage francinebelli.com slash podcast with all the references and resources shared on this show whilst you are there leave me a message to tell me in the comments what was your key takeaway from this episode 
If you enjoy this podcast and want to show your love and support, subscribe to the Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or the app where you are listening to this podcast and leave me a five-star review. It will take you a minute, but it will mean a lot to me and will also help me to spread this word and being found online. So thank you for listening to the Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast, the show that empower you to redefine the life you want and live your best life now. I will see you next week for another epic episode of the season four. Until then, dream, act and make an impact. Lots of love.